Today's topic um, that I chose, and you kept pushing me a different topic, but today's topic is entitled, <laughs> I have to get the topic on. Israel, I know, Israel dash diaspora relations changing narratives because I've had discussions where I just do not like the word diaspora. I don't wake up in the morning and look at Mike Lefkowitz over coffee and just saying and say, boy, how are you enjoying your diasporic day today? Eh, it's okay. So that, we're going to discuss that. Um, a few fun facts about Israel because people are still coming in. That's good. I, uh, I have 70 fun facts for you, but to, to spare Rochelle, I'll give you just a few. Cherry tomatoes were engineered first in Israel. I don't know if you knew that. Um, Israel's cows produce more milk than cows from other countries. That's because they have drill sergeants, I think. I don't know. Um, you're a major. I don't know what that means. That's an officer. Is that? Okay. 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 I could never tell. I would never be able to tell that from you. An Israeli company developed the world's first jellyfish repellent. Are you guys writing these things down? I'll give you one more. Buses around Israel have signs that quote the biblical passage, you shall rise before the aged and show deference to the old. Israel is a fascinating country. It is so much more fascinating than what we read about in the news. And yes, the situation in Israel and the, and the, and the um, political stuff is what's dominant and it's important but there's so much more. So let's get into some of the more yeah, stuff. Yeah. Thank you. Shalom, good morning. How wonderful for you to all be here. Get up that early in the morning, get your exercise before. I at least had an amazing coffee prepared for me. And thank you, Aaron, for that and for the hospitality, yours and Joanna's. So uh, I am wondering, uh, I see many familiar faces who um, I have seen throughout these last two and a half days, but also in my earlier visits. I wonder if there is somebody in the room who is meeting me for the first time. Okay, so my following comment is only to you guys because all the, all the others have been through that. Since I get these formal introductions that tell you how fabulous a speaker I am and teaching other teachers and la la la, but you get to know nothing about me really, you get a chance to find out what you are really interested in to find out about me. So you get to ask three questions, not each, all of you together. And I always offer for you to think about it the following way. If I knew that fact about your Rachel, that would make this session much more meaningful for me. Or the flip side, if I do not know that about you, I really don't care what you have to say. So go ahead if you have any. What do you need to know about me? Anybody? You're good? You don't care about my grandchildren, my chocolate mousse recipe, nothing. OK, I can live with that. What do you need to know about me? Nothing. Yes, ma'am. You are allowed. If you cannot guess that by the time I am done, you need to see me after class. I am so transparent in my views. It is so clear. Is there anybody in the room who will tell her, after having listened to a few of my lectures, which side of the political continuum I am on? Extreme right wing. And he said, smola, which means to the left, to the left, to the left. Yeah. Yes, ma'am? I've seen you before, but I feel 
Yeah, they are not courageous enough. They don't know the, the ambiance. Next time they'll ask, yeah. There is nobody who can speak for all of the Israelis. There is not a thing. On top of being Israelis, most of us are Jews, and therefore, why should we agree on anything? <laughs> and I think that the answer relies in that exactly. And how about what do you think? Hang on, hang on. So I think, and they will agree from their standpoint on this one, that the splits within are our most biggest issue right now. And with the trend of these days not be not only being uniquely Israelis, where the Israeli, where the language of debate had so deteriorated, I think, and you may know something about that, and enough said. Is there any last third question? Yes, are you among those who are here for the first time, yes. or meeting me for the first time? Yes. Yeah, then he goes. Yeah. No, but I lived in Canada. Is that good enough? I was afraid of that. I was afraid of that, but during the 80s, I was a Shlichai and emissary to the Jewish community of Montreal, Canada. I lived there. I know that, but it's so much fun and so much better. <laughs> so for three and a half years, I lived in the Jewish community of Montreal, Canada. I can also speak French. That was part of the reason why I was sent there. So I have the most amazing phenomena in my life. I was born in Israel, my family, my kids were born in Israel, we are all Savras, not my husband, he's in Ole Chadash. Came uh, seven, no, 60 years ago. But he's still an Ole Chadash, a new immigrant to me. <laughs> and though with all that, uh, both my kids are graduates of a Jewish day school in North America. You don't have many Israeli families like that. So both my kids have graduated the Bialik, or as pronounced in Montreal, the Bialik uh, Jewish day school, which is left of center, in case you're worrying. <laughs> All right? And yes, so I have lived in North America, traveled a lot in America. And I think we are done and into the topic. So the topic today is Israel diaspora relations changing narratives, which may suggest that I may think or present that idea that there used to be a narrative and then something happened to it that it had changed, right? And it's more or less that, but it's as always more messy and more complicated. Because it's not that you have a narrative and then you wake up this morning and say, it's time to change the narrative. And then you change it and you have another. These are processes and they take long. But the one thing I'd like to claim that at no matter what point in the development of the Israel diaspora relations, eh, I'm gonna meet you, no matter what part of it I'm gonna discuss, honesty is needed. Because I am an Israeli and you are not. And therefore, I would like to start this conversation of honesty by offering to be honest with you. And I will show you in the clearest way how are we Israelis educated to think about Jews who do not live in Israel. And then you will help me figuring out how you guys are thinking about us Israelis. And maybe if we are honest along these lines, we can get somewhere and do something about the changing, because change is needed. 
In order for us to do that, uh, gentlemen, what is your name? Mike. Moshe Michael. Moshe Michael. Uh, you lived in Israel between what age and what age? Pardon? Nine to fourteen. Nine to fourteen. You went to an Israeli school. Yes. And you were there what, like fourth grade, fifth grade? Fourth grade. That's wonderful. That's exactly the age group I'm looking for. So we are all going back through my honest tale to the time we were not adult and sophisticated and we know it's complicated now. We are going back to the time when we go to elementary school because this is where your opinions, your way of thinking will be formed for a long time and it will take you a process of maturing to look back on them and maybe check and maybe revise. So when you go to an Israeli elementary school for my generation, also true for my children, and I keep constantly to check with my grandchildren whether a change had occurred. And this morning, Facebook gave me an answer, but I'll come to that at the end. When you go to an Israeli school, Mike, between ninth, age nine and age 14 or whatever, you have classroom, home classroom teachers, right? They are called mechanech or mechanechet, your educator. And in Israel, you do not call your teacher Mr. So-and-so or Mrs. So-and-so. You call him or her by her first name. So my teacher in those years, I'm going to go to fourth grade. My teacher's name was Tsipora. What was the name of your teacher? It's been too long. Give me a name of one teacher you remember. Yaakov. Yaakov. I knew that. Normally, they were women, but there occasionally there was a Yaakov. OK. <laughs> so we have Tsipora, we have Yaakov. Those of you who have some experience with Israel, and can visualize a classical elementary school teacher a few years back, give me another name. We have Yaakov, we have Tsipora. Give me one more. Like of those, pardon? Roti is perfect. Roti is just perfect. Roti works. So when the three imaginary students that we were in elementary school back in the day uh, went to school, I trust More, teacher female, Yaakov, Mora, female, uh, no, male, female, Mora Ruti, and Mora Tsipora. They spoke to us about many topics, and among other things, about the amazing fortune that we enjoyed to be the first generation, in my case, to go to school in a sovereign Jewish state. First time after 2,000 years, do you hear by Moriakov any of these tunes, like how great it was to be able to live in Israel? Absolutely. Mike? Absolutely. Absolutely. Occasionally, Moriakov, Moraluti, and my Moratsipora did mention the fact that there were some Jews who were not as fortunate as us because they were not living with us in our amazing country. They were living in another place. Now, asking you, don't rush. Think. Morayakov, Moraruti, Moratsipora, and all the others have used a word to teach us about the name of that other place. Hang on for a minute, Ali. The name of that other place where the Jews who are less fortunate than us were living. 
What was the name of that place? Pardon? Gola, normally. Gelut is an expression that you use in the Gola about the Gola, but it's the same, okay? It's the same. Can anybody tell me what does Gola mean? What's the literal translation of the word? It's not diaspora, it's exile. Now, I want you to ponder this minute as I'm growing up and my kids are growing up, and unfortunately, my grandchildren too. Did you guys ever, in those unfortunate conditions by which you're living according to my Mora Tsipora and his Mora Yaakov and her Mora Roti, did you ever know that you lived in exile? No. So you see how smart we are? <laughs> we know all there is to know about you by, while you guys don't have a clue. We know where you live, you don't. Okay. According to Mora Yaakov, Mora Ruti, and Mora Tsipora, what do you think? Was Gola a good place or a bad place? Gola is a horrible place. I trust you know that. What are the characteristics, according to our teachers, Yaakov, Ruti, and Tsipora, that made the Gola such a horrible place? What qualifies the Gola to be so bad? What happens to you if you live in Gola? Yeah. Anti-Semitism, now go a step further. If you are a Jew that lives in Gola, according to my teachers, what will happen to you because of the anti-Semites? Assimilation. Assimilation is the good scenario. What will the anti-Semite do to you? Give me a good word. You'll die. They'll kill you. Everybody knows that. At least our teachers did. In case you managed to escape this horrible death by anti-Semites, there was another option that could happen to you when you lived in Gola, and that would be assimilation. If you live in Gola, you will either assimilate or will die. Now comes the tricky part. In case one of us was to meet one of those Gola Jews, and they would tell us, what are you talking about? We have a great life in California. What are we good, well-educated Israeli kids supposed to tell them? They tell us, stop talking this nonsense. You have no idea. We have a great life in California. It's not an exile. What are we to tell them? That's what they taught in Germany. Just you wait. <laughs> Just, you got, did you go to Marazipora? You got it perfect, to the dot. Just you wait. The Jews back in Germany, they have believed that too. And look what happened to them. Now we are well-trained Israeli kids, and we know what we are supposed to do when we meet you, because we worry about you. And it is our sacred obligation to show you the light. Make Aliyah, Hasbara, whatever. While we assume this obligation, you too, because we are Mishpocha and there is a relationship, you also have some responsibility towards us. What is your obligation while you still stupidly live in Gula? What is your obligation? You have to send us money. Thank you, you got this right. 
Why, by the way, do you have to send us money? For the just you wait. Exactly. She's perfect, like A++. For the day. Because while you are having it good in that place, Gola, not realizing that it's an exile, we are keeping the stronghold. We can elaborate how we toll, sweat, bleed, you know? We, we, were, we have movies about everything, you know? And we are keeping the stronghold. It's the insurance policy. You're supposed to pay into the insurance policy so that we keep the stronghold for you. Did you get that right, that relationship? That's the essence of Israel diaspora relationship that I'm going to challenge. But you know what happened? We were smart kids, Michael. And you too, even you're our imaginary Israeli student, and me for sure. And we were learning not only in school by Morat Sipora, Roti, and Yaakov. We were also learning outside of school. And there were movies, and books, and people. And we heard about another place. That other place was called Chutz La'aretz. Chutz La'aretz literal translation is abroad, outside of the country. What do you think about Chutz La'aretz, the one that is never mentioned in school, the one you learn about from the movies? Is Chutz La'aretz a good place or a bad place? Hmm? Yeah. Why? This is what they tell you in school. You're in the movies. And you see a beautiful American movie. Is Chutzlerz a good place or a bad place? When I, whenever I've heard that term, it has more to do with traveling to. Yeah, I, I, I realize that, but not only traveling, but traveling. But when you travel to that place, are you going to come to a horrible place or to a good place? Chutz La'aretz is an amazing place, let me tell you. What are the characteristics that make Chutz La'aretz a good place? That's a beautiful word. Now take me to elementary school. Stuff. Chutz La'aretz has jeans, chewing gum, brabies, you know, stuff. Chutz La'aretz has a lot of stuff that we don't have in Israel. You, you have been long ago, okay, because we have that now. Can I ask somebody to pour me some, some more water? Will you do that for me, Alec? Thank you. Alec, thank you. We'll get there in a minute. We'll get there in a minute. Bear with me. I know all that. So Chutzlaretz is a good place because it has stuff and they are rich. All Chutzlaretz people are rich, I'll have you know. We know that just as we know that you live in exile, to Darba. But Chutzlaretz has another characteristic. While Gula is dangerous because they'll kill you, Chutzlaretz is safe. People not, don't go on reserve duty. They don't check your purse when you go into the supermarket. Chutzlaretz is safe and plentiful. Gola is dangerous and you will die. And we grow up perfectly fine, later in life having, of course, to employ psychotherapists. But as we grow up with, with totally dual narratives, 
and we are totally happy with them. Now comes the day when more than one Israeli will consider the possibility of going to live in Chutel abroad for study, for travel, for whatever. They will say it's for a year or two, and then the child is born, and when the child will graduate college, maybe, you know? But it's for a year or two. When Israelis consider the possibility of going outside of Israel, and before internet time, when you had to go to an office to buy your tickets, do they ask for a ticket for Gula, or do they ask for a ticket for Chutzlaaretz? Where do you get your tickets for as an Israeli? Huh? America. America. it's America, yeah. You can go even to France, but it's Chutzlaaretz. They don't sell tickets to Gula. They only sell tickets to Chutzlaaretz. The only place you can get a ticket to Gula is when you get to be an emissary for the Jewish agency. The Jewish agency sends you to Gula. But if you buy your own ticket, you go to Chutzlaaretz. A few years ago, true story, everything I'm telling you really happened. So I developed this session, and Danny Steiner, who used to be the head of the Leo Beck School in Haifa back in the day, and we, we, we go way back. He was my son's madrich in youth movement, and you develop a relationship with your children's counselor in, in the youth. So Danny is a madrich. Danny heads the school, and the Leo Beck School in Haifa is very connected to international activities, and they have more than one delegation of kids coming here, visiting with reform communities, going to school, you know the stuff. Israel is going to, to do these things. So Danny asked me to come and do a presentation. Excuse me. Sure. Some water. <laughs> yeah, sure. It's, oh, it's, it's on the other side. Okay, so Danny asked me to do this presentation in school. So there's a whole school auditorium because there is more than one delegation going. Teachers are there, principal is there. I'm doing and I'm reaching this point. <laughs> and I'm turning to the kids, high school, and I say, kids, now let be honest with me. When you're getting ready for the strip of your delegation, in your mind, are you going to Gola or to Chutzlaaretz? Total silence. They don't get to, they don't answer me. So I said, do I need to ask Mr. Steiner, the principal, to step out of the room so that you will answer me honestly? And they sort of smile. So I said, Danny, will you step out or tell them that they can speak honestly? And he came by the podium by me and said, guys, come on, let's have it. What do you feel? And one of them, a more courageous Israeli, and you know Israelis, they will address the speaker in the first one. Rachel, you don't get it. In the morning, when we will go to the Jewish day schools or on Shabbat to shul, we will be in Gula. And in the afternoon, when we go shopping or to the stadium, then we will be in Chutzlaaretz. What's the problem? So the kid got it right. And then, when I do this presentation to in Hebrew, to communities of Israelis who live here, Silicon Valley, New Jersey, whatever. 
and I'll ask them, guys, now that you are here for 2, 3, 5, 17, 18, 23, 35 years, where are you? In Chutzlaretz or in Gula? They all say? Chutzlaretz. Say, now you need to help me. You're Jewish people who are here, and you, by your own words, live in Chutzlaretz. So who lives in Gula? And the audience is normally mixed because they are married with local people and they say, they live in Gula. So let me get this clear. Across the street from you, or the house adjacent to your house in the Jewish suburb, quote unquote, you are in Chutzlaretz, they are in Gula. Yeah, okay. And now comes the big question. Crucial, crucial, crucial. Uh, you cannot imagine how many rabbis I have interviewed on this. You do not know how many rabbis I offered free sessions if they got Israelis into the synagogue <laughs> to study with me Hebrew literature in Hebrew. Only one delivered so far, Rabbi Kirshner, in, in, and, and recently, two months ago. Why would Israelis not join your synagogues beyond the fact that it costs money and they're not used to have to pay for going to synagogue? Why do they not join your synagogues? Because you're joining your synagogue is, is synagogue is where Gola happens. If they join your synagogue, they have made the last move to admit that they now belong to a Gola Jewish community. And they cannot do that because Moraruti and Morayakov and Moratsipora are still hovering over their heads and all the other teachers. We are really, really nuts in the way we have developed this language. When I do the sessions to Israelis, if ever it happens here, and I will continue along a different line, I'll, I'll take a different line with you, I will tell them, you know why you need to join the synagogues and the local organizations and whatever? because there is no second generation Israelis outside of Israel. If you want to make sure that your kids will at least have a chance to remain Jewish, because Israelis, they will not become through your stories about your military service. That will not happen. And what I have is weeping, teary cheeks when I say that, that you have to join synagogue. You have to join the local organization. You have to find the money and send the kid to the school. And it's hard. You wanted to make a comment or ask? I just wanted to clarify, so are you saying that um, in the, when they keep the context, their secular, non-religious life, then they believe they are in... Uh, in Israel. In, 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 yeah, they are in Chutzlaz, they are Israelis in Chutzlaz. But when you ask them to consider the religious I don't use the word religious. I said that join the community, the Kehillah. Become member of where you are because you're not a member of the Kehillah over there anymore, no matter what you tell yourself. And that's when they feel... And that, then we start weeping. Because it's such a hard decision. There are occasionally here and there people who can understand that. Or who are married with local Jews. And that it will happen. Okay. The question is the split of thinking about yourself in terms of Israeli 
And thinking about yourself in terms of a Jew in a Jewish community or in America, not wanting to use the bad word diaspora here in this room, out of respect to Ari, I want to take you back in history because we Jews, we always go back in history. Never does a story start yesterday. So one has lots of choices. And I'm going to choose the year 1891. Don't scratch your heads. Unless you're really into the field, there is no chance you will remember what happened because it's a minute event. On that year, on the Hebrew calendar, a young 17-year-old yeshiva bocher in the mother of all yeshivot in northern Ukraine, Volozhin yeshiva, is writing a poem. He put the date on it. More than the year. He put the months. He said, Nisan. So it's Pesach. It's around this time of the year. And the poem is called El Hatsipor, To the Bird. The poem is Bialik, our national poet, first poem. He is 17. By the way, he finds himself in the Volozhin yeshiva after his father died. His mother couldn't raise him. He was sent to grandpa, and grandpa had sent him to yeshiva. Grandpa was more orthodox than his mother and father had been. And he had to argue with his grandfather on which yeshiva. And they agreed on the Volozhin because Bialik, the youth, had heard that Volozhin was a modern yeshiva. Now, I want you to think, end of the 19th century, what would make a yeshiva modern? In the Ukraine, in the Pale of Settlement, it's still the Pale of Settlement, it's still the Tsars. What would make a yeshiva modern? Give me a guess. No, you want to yeshiva? No. Almost. You, you are on the good thinking, but not totally. Okay, but you think right. It's not math and English. They teach Tanakh. In classical Orthodox, very conservative, not conservative, the movement, conservative like the attitude. They do not teach Tanakh. They teach Mishnah and Talmud and Rashi and Mefarshim. The story is not interesting. It's the referencing. Did you find, I, I, I really, I dare you, check with Haredi people. They don't know the biblical stories. They do not know the biblical stories. They know what Rashi had said about Deborah or Barak or Saul or, or Prophet Samuel. But they don't know what they have done or, or their discourse or whatever. In Volajin, they teach Tanakh. That is considered men on the way to Zionism. Because Tanakh is the connectedness to the real stories that happened in the land of Israel. All the referencing comes from outside of Israel, from Golab, okay? From the 2,000 years of, excuse me, diasporic life. Influenced by Tanakh, studying in hiding modern Hebrew with other students, he composes a poem. I didn't bring the text. 
I wanted for us to have the experience of learning as they would at the time, when not everybody will have a copy, you will listen. The poem, like many Israeli or Hebrew poems, were set to music. I will say the words to you first of just the first stanza. It has about nine. We're not doing all. I want for you to listen to them twice in Hebrew, and then I'll give you the translation. Why twice? Because there is the Hebrew that I speak, which is type of a Sephardi accentuation of the words. That's not the Hebrew Bialik has spoken in the Ukraine. And that's not the rhythm of the poem and the rhyming. It's based on Ashkenazis. So I'll let you listen to it as I would have it read to me in school by Morozipora. And then we'll do the Ashkenazis as Bialik would have pronounced it. Hebrew of our times. Shalom Rav Shuvech Tzipora Nechmedet Me'artzot Hachom El Chaloni El Kolech Ki Arev Manafshi Kalta Bachoref Be'ozvech Me'oni And Ashkenazis Shalom Rav Shuvech Tzipora Nechmedes Me'artzot Hachom El Chaloni El Kolech Ki Arev Manafshi Kalasa and the content. And, and now it was set to music. Again, I'm a horrible singer. I prefer, go online and look for Bialik's to the bird. You will find six different renditions on YouTube. I would choose the Nechama Handel one because I love it best. It belongs to my childhood. But there are much more modern ones. It will sound like this. <clears throat> Shalom Rav Shuvech Tzipora Nechmedet Me'arzot Hachomel Chaloni El Kolech Kiarev Manafshi Kalata You can hear that the music is set to the Ashkenazis because the music makes you sing El Kolech while the modern Hebrew will say Kolech and then you cannot sing it in the modern Hebrew. You have to, and, and Nechama Handel is respectful of the Ashkenazis, and she sings it properly. What does it mean? Welcome back, beautiful word, cute word. Now, I need for you to see that and thank you for this, because it totally helps me explain. I would say that the beginning of the split between us, that will cause the Golan Huslar split, to me, starts at that moment. I don't think Bialik meant it, but it's a good moment. Bialik is a yeshiva vocher. He is standing by the stander and doing his Talmud, right? He's doing the Gemara and the Mefarshim. But it's Nisan. Nisan is spring. And suddenly he hears a bird knocking on the window. Are you originally from that part of the world? You are. When birds knock on windows in Eastern Europe, let's say, I don't know where you are from, Moldavia, Ukraine, whatever, where do they come from? From the south. From the south. How far south? Israel. Okay. So he moves from the stander 
in which you study Judaism and connectedness to the land, which is all in your head and theoretical. And on the window, there is the physical little bird, and he goes there to welcome it. He says, welcome back, sweet little bird, from the lens, from the warm lens to my window. How I longed for your sweet voice when you had left my home in the winter. And then he goes to the next stanza, which we are not studying some other time when we do a Bialik session. He says, do you bring me news from our brethren back there? And he uses the term krovim rechokim. Krovim in Hebrew is relative, but it means close. But he realizes that they are far away. We all know that we are mishpoche, krovim, and Bialik know that we are rechokim. When you live away from Israel, and all your Israel is the paper, the media, the Talmud doesn't matter, and you do not step away to welcome the one who had come with the tune, with the song, with the word, the physical connectedness to Eretz Israel. And Bialik makes that point. And he will end up making Aliyah. All right? It was a long way. Only in 24 did he will come to Israel. But still, he is making that first step to go towards there. When you read the rest of the poem, you will see how Bialik studies Tanakh. Because obviously, he had not been on an Arikat's tour to Israel. So therefore, his only physical knowledge of the land of Israel is from the Tanakh. The Carmel, the Hermon, the Valley of Jezel, the this, the that from the books, which you will not find in the Mishnah, which you will not find in the Talmud, in the Gemara. So Bialik knows Tanakh. And from Tanakh, you will get a physical connectedness to the land of Israel. And if you have studied with me anybody, Yesterday, at the lunch meeting in the synagogue about biblical motifs in Israeli literature, you will see how modern contemporary Israeli literature is versed and rooted in Tanakh. We barely know about Rashi, one of the commentators. But we all know, okay, we all know the stories of Tanakh. So Bialik is starting that route. And then I'd like to stop you at another stop. The other stop, again, is probably a weird date that you will not know, but I'm here to tell you. 1903. What happens in 1903? No, 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 quickly. Pardon? The Kishinev pogrom. Thank you. The Kishinev pogrom. Moldavia. Which is related to in Jewish history and the last, as the last medieval pogrom and the first voice of what is yet to come. In Jewish history at that moment, it's conceived as the worst tragedy. <clears throat> Little do they know what is to come. At the same year, the pogrom is in April, just like Bialik's poem because it's connected to Easter. It's in the churches that they get excited and then they go out and do the pogrom. 
In August, you have the Sixth Zionist Congress. What happens in the Sixth Zionist Congress? Herzl will put forward the suggestion to go to Uganda. Herzl is scared stiff by the Kishinev pogrom, and he is not alone. And therefore, he says, we need a safe haven for a night. Europe needs to be left. Jabotinsky, a few years later, will say, he will use the term evacuatia. If you grew up in Beitar circles, you will have heard that, leave Europe, evacuate Europe, okay? I want to take you now to those years in Jewish lore and see what were the options available to us. It's just before the first revolution and still far away from the second socialist then communist revolution. So we are still in the pale of settlement. Let me also tell you that in those times in Jewish history, the majority of our people, if I wanted to be tacky and making a joke, I would say that the majority of our people would have lived between Minsk and Pinsk. Since I want to be a little bit more rational, I will say between the Danube and the Volga. This is where we are. There are some Jews in Western Europe, not huge numbers. There are very few Jews in Muslim countries as compared to the millions in Eastern Europe. So it's not that I'm overlooking Sephardi Judaism. And by the end of the 19th century, you do not yet have the numbers here, okay? So if we are Jews living in all Europe, let me get you a few options and tell me if you can trace in your family history <coughs> the lore of that. A grand majority will say, what do you mean options? Whatever was good for our forefathers is good for us. You study Torah, you give your kid a trade, you celebrate all the holidays, you keep kosher, you marry off your daughter, you know, you live. Pogrom comes, pogrom goes. Life as it used to be, remain who we have always been. Anybody with that background, orthodox, what do you mean options? There is one option. We do what your fathers have done. I will raise my hand for my mother's family. One generation back, I come from an orthodox background. So I don't see anybody in the room. You, ma'am, is joining me. You. Okay, thank you. There's another option. I'm always curious about that one. Na, 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 na. Time to get out of the ghetto. There is emancipation already in France, in Germany, in Hungary, in Austria. We too should strive. A, what's his name? A, just opened the art school in St. Petersburg, you know? There are, oh yeah, the name will come to me in a moment. A Jew, like a very wealthy Jew. Let's move to the big cities. You can do that. And if we only stop dressing weird like you do, and acting weird, and learning their languages properly, and going to their universities, you know, be a Jew in your home, and a human being outside. Enlightenment, Haskalah in Hebrew. How many have that in your background? The Freud, the Einstein, the this, the that. I'm raising my other hand, not for me, for my husband's family 
My husband is the fourth generation professor to have taught in the Budapest University, in his family. Had the Holocaust not happened, totally assimilated. Okay? Yeah, you speak proper Hungarian, you speak proper German, you listen to Beethoven, you know, very few. Huh. Let me give you a fourth option. No, 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 no. All this, no. There is now a new chance. There is that country across the ocean. A golden Medina, they call it in Yiddish. The golden country. You know, it never ever had a pogrom on that land. And everybody there can be who they are. You can be just an American and then access. You can be a normal being, you know, just like they are Christian and you can be Jewish. Well, it took a few years for that to happen, but it did happen. Go to America. Also, travel is safer because we now have the trains. And until we had the trains, moving around was risky and expensive. But with the train, let's go to America. Now I'm going to be specific. How many of you can trace the arrival of family members to this country somewhere between the first and the second decade of the 20th century? Look around you, look around you, look around you. This is Kishinev pogrom. This is the repercussion of the Kishinev and other such. Go to America, here we are, all right? Fourth last option, na, na, na. You want to be normal? Let's be normal like everybody else. They have their passport and flag and government and prime minister and army, we should too. Zionism. Zionism. Now I'm going to ask. Because the second Aliyah, Ben-Gurion, Weizmann, Golda, etc., the major, that's 1904, immediately following the Kishinev pogrom and the Sixth Congress, no to Uganda. Death of Herzl as well. How many of you have in their background those who <laughs> opted for the Zionist way? Well, not me either. We are post-Holocaust, necessity Zionist, not ideology Zionist in my family. My family would have loved to stay in Europe. One, thank you. Two, zero. Ladies and gentlemen, for every 20 Jews who went to America, one or two went to Palestine. For every 10 who went to Palestine, seven will come back within the first two year, few years or move on to America, Australia, New Zealand, Argentina and such. The Zionist movement was zilch, was nothing. You guys were the big story. This was the hope of the future of the Jewish people. When in 1917, 15 years later, towards the end of World War I, with a strong Zionist movement already, Weizmann is managing to get us the Balfour Declaration. You know, we finally can have a place, a national home, recognized by the powers that be, the document that Herzl killed himself to get and didn't. And he's hoping now they will come en masse <laughs> for the 
Following a few months, the Balfour Declaration, Weizmann writes an article, very famous if you study Zionist important articles. And it's called in Hebrew, Am Yisrael Ayeka, people of Israel, where are you? They're not coming, they're all on their way to the Bronx. They are all on their way to the Bronx, they are not coming. So had the development gone that way, I won't have a story. What changes in the, is the Holocaust. What changes the whole story is the Holocaust. So the Holocaust will tell us that Orthodox, Hasidic, and non-Hasidic jewelry of the Pale of Settlement, unfortunately, the numbers that were remained after that was very so. They, they, they are kicking back, they are coming back, but not in the early years. Enlightenment, the Jews who believed in being Germans of the Mosaic faith, that was zilched by the Holocaust as well. Those who went for the communist regime, that will be and dream that will be destroyed as well. The two options that remained are here and Israel. Of all the options that we had 100 years ago, two remained, two basic, okay? Now, to your knowledge, knowledge about the Holocaust and knowledge about Israel sort of comes together, linked, because the events are so close to each other. Liberation, 1945, birth of the State of Israel, 1948. How can you divide? So next to the little kid who is raising his hands helplessly, you will immediately start having Palmachniks marching. And next to the burning shtetl, you will have bulldozers building kibbutzim, you know? And next to the train wagons, taking Jews to be killed in Auschwitz, you will have boats bringing them to safety in Israel. Wow! The stories are linked. Israel is the great tikkun. It's the reparation of our history. We are kicking back no matter how bad it was. And for American Jews in the early years, this was the story. No, you didn't intend to go on your own. But you will support others to go. Not only that, but we were really nice because we helped that notion and we created that language of talking about Israel. When the powerlessness and the, the impotence of Jews in Europe to defend themselves will be creating our right for defense. And the burning of Jewish communities will create our need to settle wherever. And the fact that we had nowhere to go is now negated by the safe haven in the land of Israel. So defense, safe haven settlements. These were pure notions. Nobody discussed them. They were not complicated. Who would doubt our right to defend ourselves after the Holocaust when nobody helped us? Who would say we didn't have the right to settle after everything was turned to ashes? Who will say we are not deserving of a place of our own after you kicked us out of all humanly possibly livable place? Oh, what had happened to those terms? Is Israel considered as fully justified by the way it's using its defense forces? 
Ah. When you discuss settlements, do you agree over all of them? Ah. It's on this side of the line, maybe. On the other side, I'm not so sure. Where did you get the land? Who paid for it? Yeah, no. And how about safe haven? Is Israel perceived as a safe haven for Jews? Yeah? yeah? When you, last you went, didn't you get three calls? Are you sure it's wise to go now? Because I'm reading on the news that, and when you sent your kid, didn't you get a few like wheezy looks that said, are you, is that a good idea for a young girl to go right now there? Are you sure? Are you really sleeping well? Come on, Israel is not considered as a safe haven. All these three terms have come under questioning. We have lost our language. But years went by, and not only did we develop and grow and try to deliver, we delivered some miracles for you. We were really very helpful. In 67, we won that victory, and wow, those paratroopers looking at the wall, we gave you exactly what you needed, the reason to be proud of us and to support. Not only that, we were really gracious, and we did for your bicentennial and Tebe. That was really nice of us, <laughs> wasn't it? Wasn't it? I mean, wow. What a gift to give American jewelry. But you are now having kids and grandchildren who have not witnessed neither the Holocaust nor the birth of the state of Israel, nor 67, not even 76. So you and us together, have come up with a wonderful idea in order to create for our young generation something that will let them experience that which our generation had, we will create the magic tour. Now, since I will sound very critical of the magic quote-unquote tour, I want to be as transparent as I can. I am part of the creators of the magic tour. I had worked for the Jewish Agency for 25 years. I contrived those tours. I'm in it. I'm just looking at what we have done together and suggesting we may want another look. Let me be as cynical as I can. What does the magic tour include? One ounce Masada, one ounce Kotel, Yad Vashem, two ounces. You need a lot of Yad Vashem. Great looking paramedic on the bus. <laughs> Compulsory. <laughs> Magic doesn't happen without him. Mix well. And you have it. I did it. I was there. I'm now helping the Arikatsis to do other tours. Okay? Now here where I'm asking you for your moment of honesty. When you are donating money to make those tours available for everybody, when your parents are saying, don't worry, we'll pay, pay for Jennifer to go, and for Noah as well, what is your intention? To make your kids make Aliyah? God forbid. Be honest with me. You don't want them to make Aliyah. Like, I don't want my kids to live here. You don't want your kids to make Aliyah. So what is it you want exactly? To be proud yeah? 
not forget what it is to be Jewish, to right. know what it means to know support Israel. You want them to be Jews like you. Okay. Yeah. You want them to you want to try and still on them a connection to therefore a love for Israel. So and that Ah, the problem is at you as well. Yeah, okay. You want the, commit the commitment, the connectedness. Basically, you want them to be Jews like you. Yes, what else? The problem is when the connection to Israel, kind of, the connection to the Jews that live in Mecca. Okay, you are becoming subtle enough for my semester course. <laughs> but, but yeah, okay. All right. But here's the big question. You actually want them, you don't want them to make Aliyah. God forbid they should fall in love with the paramedic, right? And his mother is saying, God forbid he should fall in love with Jennifer. <laughs> because you're afraid he will take Jennifer there, and she's afraid uh, Jennifer will take Yossi here. You know, so we are both afraid. Now we are not worried about each other anymore, we are just afraid of each other. Okay. But could you please explain to me why do you send them to me to make them Jews like you? I don't know how to be a Jew like you. And you send them to me to make this program through the Jewish agency with that guy who made the speech that I sent you a copy of this morning. He was my boss. We don't know how to make Jews like you. You know how to make Jews like you. And yet you send them to us to strengthen that. And you know what? I don't have any explanation. It works. It does work. The Israel trip has a magic. He does something. It does something. But here is where I'm calling upon you to reconsider. When your kids and yourselves, even with smarter tours, are coming to Israel for 10 days or two weeks or whatever, you go to places and you sit in rooms and you meet people, and you watch sites, and all of them, the essence are, listen to how great we are. We wrote this, we built this, we created this, we painted this, we did this. Listen, admire. And I need you for more than that, and more than Morosipol. When do my kids get to hear how great you are? When they do they find out that there is a possibility for pluralistic Judaism? When do they discover that the other half of the mishpocha is a legitimate part of the family, although they have opted, opted differently? It's not happening. The relation today is so elaborate and so one-sided. It will be our destruction, Israelis, my Shira, my oldest granddaughter, smart as they go, ninth grade and already taking university, sorry, 10th grade and already taking university courses in science. She's smart. Safta, what are you doing there when you go? Who are those people? Okay. Guys, a change is needed, and I'm calling for that change. For many, many, many years of our existence, we lived the exile experience. And the poetic expression of that is that quote from Psalms on the rivers of Babylon, 
were sitting and weeping for Jerusalem. We suffered in the diaspora. We remembered the beauty of Jerusalem. Oy, exile was terrible. Memories of Jerusalem were great. Almost 1,500 years later, a Jewish poet at the end of the Jewish world, the world as it was known in the 11th century in Spain, Yehuda Levi writes a poem, my heart is in the east and I am at the end of waste. He writes it in Hebrew in the same language that Psalms were written in the same language, I will get my parking ticket because I always do. <laughs> the magic of Hebrew to survive. And in the Yehuda Levi experience, he was living a great life in Cordova, Spain. And Jerusalem was in ruins. Not anymore. Jerusalem is not in ruins. I hope you discovered that. And I keep checking in all my visits. You are not suffering in your exiled diaspora America. We are living a different reality in the relationship for which we do not have a poem yet, for which we do not have a quote yet. The existence of two Jewish commonwealths, the state of Israel and the North American Jewish community, both of them successful, both of them upright, and we need to find a paradigm to change, to exchange that, to live a different type of relationship. I think I'd like to close here on that one. Do I still get my two minutes yeah. or it's late? We have a few quick questions. Uh -huh. enough, but, uh, questions that maybe yeah. Yes, sir. So it's my understanding that Israel is doing much better economically now than it has been in the past. We should lead to relief of some of this economic pressure to look upon the United States as a place with, where the streets are paved with gold. It's not so bad in Israel. Is that translating to a, uh, a change in this monologue that they're teaching in the schools? Uh, I don't think it does. Israel does not yet, deep inside, perceive itself as strong economically. We are a very rich country with some very poor people, as you are. <coughs> Okay, the gaps are tremendous. And what I can say that now contributions from diaspora, from Jews living outside of Israel, go a long way to address those issues, that which the government does not take care of. And this monologue that they're teaching, is this because they're afraid that the kids learn about other places that they'll just leave? I think so. I, but I, I, I really don't know. I, first of all, I haven't been involved with schools recently. I just checked through my grandchildren. And I thought to say, and with this I will conclude this one, I thought to say this morning, I hope it's changing. But unfortunately I woke up, and as some of us do as we wake up, I check my Facebook. And there was a post from the Jewish agency, my former boss, making a little clip for Israeli kids in Hebrew with beautiful graphics of an artist. And it's all about how we need to worry about our cousins across the ocean for the fear of anti-Semitism and assimilation. Nothing had changed. I'll take one more question. Yes, sir. A lot has to do with language. I sit on both sides. And my Israeli friends call me the American Jew. Uh -huh. My American Jews call me the Israeli. 
for those six or seven years they call you the Israeli? Wow, that costs you a lot. <laughs> yeah. Nobody talks about the Israeli Jews. I know language is very important, but since you gave me this opportunity, why shall I not use it? Language is indeed an issue. In order for me to do my work, I need to come here and speak to you in English, and then to travel to my other beloved Jewish community in Budapest, Hungary, and speak Hungarian. And I've also, because of Montreal and other reasons, have trained myself to speak French. Will you please take the trouble to learn a little bit of my language as well, to make life slightly easier for us, and to make the linguistic codes and the symbols and the meanings flowing more easily between us? One more, yeah. In closing up, you're talking about the magic of Hebrew, uh -huh. and something to survive. Could you just tell me what you were meaning? The fact that I used to yell at my husband or my kids the same language that a medieval poet had used in Spain to create beauty, and he himself was using the very same language that the biblical poet have used, we allegedly King David, uh, to write psalms. And none of us needs to take a course to understand the language of the other. Show me another culture in the world that through 3,000 years have managed to keep the possibility to converse. You know, I sometimes travel in Europe and, and with American Jews or whatever, and we go to a cemetery and we go to the tombstones, and no matter how old they are, I can read what's on them. And they look at me as, it's not magic, it's Hebrew. But Hebrew is magic. Then? One more? Uh, see me after class. One second. A few months ago, I have decided out of two thoughts that crossed my mind. A, I'm not getting any younger, like none of us, and I have developed this ability to teach about Israel through literature, and I want to pass it on for others to be able to do it, teachers. Then comes the 70th anniversary of Israel, and I'm thinking many people will be satisfied with a barbecue or a birthday cake, but there might be others who want to do some more. So I'm creating a study kit that will have seven units, one for each decade of the state. In each one of the units, we will address two of the major achievements of that decade in the history of the state of Israel and two challenges. And we will do all of that through the poetry and literature of the time. And I will create the source sheets for the student, the detailedly annotated sheets for the teacher, so he or she know how to teach, and the PowerPoints with the background and the music and the links to go along with it. I have created an internet site where this is uploaded. Three, the first three decades are done. The fourth is coming shortly, and the, two, the, the others will follow as we go. I want it to be accessible for all. I do not want a rabbi of a small, either just beginning or aging congregation not to be able to do it for money. So what I have done is that I opened the site for all to use, but I went 
and started fundraising. The budget is not large. I put a price tag for my work, plus some for the internet site maintenance, and altogether, it's $30,000. I have raised $20,000 already. It's done. But I'm still looking to what is remaining, and everybody or everybody that contributes get to go on the site, and they are quoted that this is made available to all because of the generosity of. Please go to rachelcarazim.com and you can yourself look at the material. If you want to download, you will need a password. So I'm telling you here and now, first decade, the password is 1947. For the second decade, the password is 1958. For the third, it's 1968. Can you guess the coming ones? I think you can. Okay, I will appreciate any help that I can get, and it is already used by rabbis and adult educators throughout the country. Go ahead and enjoy it. Thank you. So, so just so you know, so CSP, if you want to donate as a group, yeah. I'll email you, and then CSP will match what you contribute up to a certain amount. So our goal is to help this project and help Rachel. So please join me in thanking Rachel for coming back to our community. We hope you'll come back again. And um, you guys, you get to go back to your lattes and barbecues and whatever is going on. And Yamat's mood is Wednesday. So enjoy a meaningful Israel Independence Day. Rosh Chodesh is today. Happy month of, uh, new month of ER. Thank you, everyone. Oh, don't forget, Avram Infeld, as I mentioned, is coming May 9th. We have the flyers outside.